You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello again, everyone. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, the City Lights Foundation, and our partners at PM Press. I'd like to welcome you to session six of Dangerous Visions and New Worlds. We are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We take a moment to acknowledge their stewardship of the land, past, present, and into the future. Our session is titled The Bridge of Lost Desire. It is an interview with Samuel Delaney, conducted by Daniel Shank Cruz. Mr. Delaney needs very little introduction. He has been instrumental in shaping the very landscape of modern science fiction. His vast body of works includes memoir, comics, space adventure, mainstream novels, homosexual erotica, and literary criticism. He's received numerous honors for his work, including numerous Nebula and Hugo Awards, his fiction includes Babel 17, The Einstein Intersection, Nova, Daldron, and much, much more. We have actually posted links in the chat function. Uh, please check them out. You'll be able to buy these books today. Uh, until recently, he was a professor of English and creative writing at Temple University. Needless to say, we are very, very honored to have him here with us. Interviewing him will be Daniel Shank Cruz. Uh, Daniel Shank Cruz is an author and an educator. Uh, he is the author of Queering Mennonite Literature, Archives, Activism, and the Search for Community, out from a Penn State University Press. His research has merged queer theory with Mennonite studies, producing very illuminating and original work that explores the intersection of critical theory with gender studies and religion. So before we begin, I'd like to remind you, we're going to be posting links again, with which you may also purchase copies of Dangerous Visions. So uh, please welcome now Daniel Shank Cruz to get our session started. Thank you, Peter, uh, and thank you everyone for being here. I wanna say that um, I'm talking with you today from Jersey City, New Jersey, which is the ancestral land of the still living, still sovereign Lunape people. And I, will, I wanna also say that uh, I live right down the block from a firehouse. So hopefully we won't hear too many sirens uh, here, <laughs> uh, but that's just what was going on here. Uh, so, um, anyway, I want to start off to add on to the introduction of Samuel Delaney that uh, Peter just gave by showing off a few of the recent books that have, uh, he has published. Uh, in 2018, PM Press, one of our co-sponsors, uh, published this book, a novella, The Atheist in the Attic, which also includes an essay and an interview. All right. Uh, and then... We had in 2019, uh, several volumes come out. The first was Letters from Amherst, uh, a collection of letters similar to the earlier collection of letters, 1984. These letters take place during uh, Chip's time at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Also in 2019, we had a novel fragment, Voyage Orestes, published by Bamberger Books. And so, uh, some of you may know the story of, of this early novel manuscript, much of which was lost. Uh, the fragment that survives is now in print, and it's a wonderful introduction to Chip's early fiction. Reading it is definitely worthwhile uh, and made me even more sad that the, that the manuscript was lost. Uh, then in 2020, 
we had a very weighty, significant novel come out, uh, Shote Rumblin, uh, His Sensations and Ideas, uh, which is a novel that uh, deals with some themes and several of other Chip's novels, uh, The Madman and Through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders. Then in 2020, uh, 2021, we had four books come out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I, I love the prolificness, Chip. Um, uh, Big Joe, a novella, which is illustrated, uh, also somewhat similar to Through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders. Uh, and then three books that we're going to be talking a lot about today uh, of Solids and Surds uh, from Yale University Press, uh, a meditation on Chip's writing life uh, and what that has been like. Then we had two volumes of collected pieces, Occasional Views 1 and Occasional Views 2, both from Wesleyan University Press, uh, which contain a wide range of pieces chip from your career. Um, and so I want to encourage everyone to go out and buy these recent books. They are wonderful additions uh, to Chip's canon, some really rich reading. Uh, and like I said, we're, we're about to talk about some of them here. So I want to say sort of at, at the end of this introduction, before we get our, our conversation started, that there is a quotation at the beginning of, of Solids and Surds from Chip's partner, Dennis, that says, quote, I think you write sometimes because people don't have the patience to listen to an older person speak, unquote. And I think we here uh, today, Chip, are all very grateful for your work and we're excited to hear you speak some with us today. So thank you so much for being willing to do so. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. So we can go ahead and get started with this first question. First, I'd love to hear about your choice of the title for Of Solids and Surds. What went into that? Well, the, the terms come from mathematics. Uh, we talk about simple solids. I think there are, what is it, six of them, or um, I forget how many there were. Uh, and then there are, and surds are irrational answers, are, are irrational answers. And it's just, there are two kinds of, you know, if you think of the world as a series of questions, there are two kinds of answers. There are simple answers, and they're very, very complicated answers that run on and on and on and on. And uh, Dennis may have been thinking of my tendency to run on and on and on and on and leave the subject way behind so that I end up talking about uh, something else. Years ago, uh, when I was at the University of Massachusetts, the, uh, the head of the department was a man named Mark Schell. And one of the things that he said, the, uh, one of the things I remember him saying is the only true explanation for anything is a complete explanation for everything else. And this is one of the things that you sort of have to worry about uh, when you ask someone like me to talk because I will end up not talking about anything that you actually asked about. Uh, but I will try for uh, this afternoon to hone it in just a little. All right, so the interconnectedness of things, right? How yes. can you speak of one thing without speaking of other things? Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. So you say um, there's a quotation on page 77 of Solids and Surds that um, Thomas Dish, who was an author who was important to your own journey, says, quote, 
writers would not write if they did not want to be objects of interest, unquote. And so how, you know, I'd love to hear uh, how you feel about events like this. How are you feeling about being an object of interest for us today? Well, the question is, of course, is what do you want to, writers want to do something that is interesting. But you, there are two, again, there are two kinds of writers. There are writers who uh, want to be interesting because of what they write. You know, and that is not not doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be interested, want people to be interested in them as, as human beings, as people. You know, I want you to read the things I write, and I hope that makes me an interesting person. And that is the kind of writer I've always been. I don't relish talking about my writing. One of the things I'm constantly saying to people, I'm not an actor. I'm not an entertainer as a person. Some people find some of the things I'm saying, if, if it's about things that they're not familiar with, mildly interesting, but I'd never thought of myself as an, as an, as an interesting person, per se. Uh, I want. I, I wrote. Uh, there's another thing. Thing I believe is quoted in the in the book very shortly after um, Dennis's comment, which is a uh, comment, which is a, a quote from my one of my favorite and I think undervalued writers, uh, Theodore Sturgeon, and he says, "I write because of all the things I can't do in the living room." Now the question is: Is are what we're doing now something that we could do in the living room, or is it? Uh, or, and we're just pretending that you know that there's a personal thing. Uh, is is there just a technological uh, accident that's allowing people uh, to overhear our conversation? Which I think is kind of what's going on. I'm not overly aware that there are a hundred people dropping in, you know. I hope they find, I'm, I'm probably going to try to keep them out of my mind because I have a feeling if I did, uh, this would become much less interesting. But that's the thing. Um, so I don't, you know, so so there you go. Let me, let's, let's leave it at there and we can, you go on to something or, you know, or answer back. You know, I'm, believe it or not, my problem as an interviewer is I'm probably far more interested in you whom I've never met and don't have not met a thing by than you are in me. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point. It is an interesting dynamic. You've written so much about your stuff yourself, so I know lots about you. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is sort of our first time meeting in, in the virtual space, right? So it's it's a weird, unequal relationship. Um, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Um, and you, might, you, 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 you mentioned you're in, what is it, Jersey City? Yeah. Yeah, in Jersey City, and I'm, I'm, I'm the immediate first thing that comes to my mind is a young writer I know who lives in Jersey City right now, and I'm wondering whether you ever ran into, you know, I could we could trick take the whole thing off there, and I have a, two, two, three of his books also within arm's reach uh, on my bookshelf, and it's all I can do to, you know, not to drag them out and show them to you and ask you whether you've ever seen them before. I would actually. I want you to do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to see it. You tell me when, and I'll do it. Let, let's do it now. Yeah, because I'm interested in this kind of virtual writing community that's created not only between you and I, uh, but also with Zoom. Tells me we currently have 144 participants 
And so this sort of yeah. community that, that here we go. Wrote. This is this this is his first book. This is my my who now lives in Jersey City. It's called Adrift in a Vanishing mm. City. And I wrote the introduction to this years and years ago. Um, when this first came out, he when he was about 23 or 24, he's now in his early 50s. We're still very good friends. I got a phone call, real honest goodness phone call from him just another just just the other night. He has a, a, a full length novel called The Christos Mosaic, which is a kind of encyclopedic novel, which I think is greatly interesting and beautifully written. I mean, he writes wonderful his, on the sentence level. And this is a, uh, it's kind of a, uh, I found it, as, uh, the, the last thing I found myself comparing it to was Umberto Eco's uh, The Foucault's Pendulum, mm. um, and it, which, is a, which, is, which, which I enjoyed much more than The Name of the Rose. But uh, anyway, uh, and, I, and, it, and it's all about, you know, was there really a Christ or not? Uh, and the Vatican gets news that there is a manuscript that proves that there wasn't, and they're trying to suppress it, et cetera, et cetera. And people are running after it and having all sorts of fights and this, that, and the other. And the scenic descriptions are great. And the adventure just keeps it going along. It's a great book. I recommend it to all, the Christos Mosaic. Uh, it's a really good read, and you learn a lot. Uh, and, of course, I just dropped a whole bunch of books on the floor. And the, this is the, can you, can you see this? This is the other uh, book, which is a little, which is a novella by Chaz. And this is out, which is a, he did, he did a, a series of stories, and I hope he, he puts them all together in one book uh, called The Unlucky Loves of uh, Milana Nedrovna, I believe, which I think uh, is, is will, when, when they all come out in a wonderful book, uh, will be indeed wonderful. But anyway, so it's interesting because he's a guy, he's a guy whom I've known since he was 21 or 22, and he's now in his early 50s, and we're still very good friends, although we do not share the same cities, but he does share a city with you. <laughs> Wonderful. So cool. Um, one of the things I find really interesting uh, about this book of solids and surds is, uh, and I'll show uh, an example here you choose to have this dialogue with your copy editor. Uh, hopefully people can see that. This is at the very beginning. Uh, there is this dialogue uh, yes. between you and the copy editor where you say to the copy editor, you know, uh, let me include some of our exchanges in this book. Uh, yes. Which is really fascinating. Why did you make that decision? Because I was tired of reading books like this um, that didn't have things like that. Um, the copy editors, when, when we started, the first thing the copy, the copy editor did was send me the first note that uh, she added to the story. It, uh, the, the copy editor happened to be a she, although we don't specify the sex. Uh, and uh, I believe, in fact, what, what she said, uh, which is quoted in the book, if I can find it now, we've got to think because I didn't mark these, uh, they're a little hard to find sometimes. Yeah, um, she, she, she they just came to stop. She, um, she said, 
I had the pleasure of editing two of Marilyn's translations for the press, the poems of um, uh, Heidi Kadour uh, and the poems of Jean-Paul de Dedelon, uh, Dedelson. De uh, I believe that, that a comment about it being a small world might be in order, uh, she said, to which I said, okay, I'll be perfectly happy to do that if we're, we can include a little bit of our conversation throughout the process. Um, to, just to let people know that the world, um, everybody knows that, you know, certain groups are, are, are small worlds. It is a small world. I had no idea that the copy editor um, had anything to do with my ex-wife, whose name is in the subtitle of the book. Right. You know, so, uh, and she just said, oh, you know, uh, and I, in fact, one of the translations she had done, I haven't even seen although I try to keep up with the things that she's published. Um, so I was very pleased to get the, the note. But I also thought it might be interesting to, to talk about that smallness as we go on. And so we have, we include some of our conversation back and forth, not about maybe a fifth of it. I mean, there's a lot of our, the, 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 the purely technical things, you know, um, you spell this wrong, there are two spellings acceptable, which one do you want, that kind of thing. Um, we, you know, um, and although one or two of those are even included just to give you a sense of. So that's how it happened. It just, it just gives another level to the construction of the object that you're holding in your hand. That's the main thing, uh, so. Yeah. So thinking of what, wanting readers to be aware sort of of the material reality of publishing a book. Yeah, that's the main that's the main thing. And there are there are there are some of those all through uh, all through this little hardcover book, uh, which incidentally, the weird thing they couldn't put because of the format, there wasn't room to put the subtitle on the cover. Oh, that's these things never have. Apparently, I'm the first yeah. person whose book had a subtitle. <laughs> as that's part really of interesting. So the result is it's not even on the um, the half title. Of course, doesn't have a subtitle. Right. And then the uh, this, which is the title page, has the subtitle, but it's not. It's very small. Uh, and then we have the first note on the title page. And then we have the, the actual, you know, then we have another half title with the subtitle. Although if, if I were designing the book, I would make the subtitle a little larger. <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's that's a that's a super fascinating point that that they would not have the designer give room for it. And I'll just I'll read the subtitle here. Uh, which is notes for Noel Sturgeon, Marilyn Hacker, Josh Lucan, Mia Wolf, Bill Stribling, and Bob White. Yeah, very fascinating. Uh, and then, you know, obviously that, you know, that's sort of part of the Library of Congress official title too. Um, yes. So, you know, this is something that's, that's sort of been a constant throughout your career. You talk a lot about how, um, you know, every book you've ever published has had some typos that you've had to go back and correct. You've had issues with uh, books going in and out of print. So certainly I think this, this is uh, something that's really important to acknowledge is not just write, writing as a creative act, but, you know, how it is a material reality, right? That, that um, 
that writers have to deal with. Uh, and I've always appreciated your sort of openness about dealing with those realities. Um, that's been really important for me sort of as, as someone who, uh, as a young writer reading your work, recognizing that this is an essential part of the, the business, so to speak. Um, yeah, so speaking of why you wrote, um, on page eight in, of Solids and Surds, you say that you wrote because you were afraid of death. Uh, and in our email conversation preparing for this event, you mentioned that you no longer fear death. Um, and I'm sure there are some of us here who would love to know how you got over that. Was that simply the practice of writing regularly or what, was it something else? It was the, it was the, I, I don't know. How does one get over anything? Is it with the, simply the passage of time? You know, uh, did certain brain cells die or did certain, you know, synapses, you know, rot away? And so um, I know it's something that I suffered from all through my childhood, uh, up through up until the time I was about 31 or 32, I would have um, these panic attacks. Um, and they could happen anywhere. And they, they were pretty devastating. At their worst, you know, I would have to, you know, go and lie down for, um, you know, a, a half an hour or what have you, and then get up and, you know, and, and, uh, and they were pretty, they were, you know, um, I don't know what to say about them other than that. And that, then they got less and less frequent. And then they stopped. By, and I have since I since I've been I'm knocking wood 35 I haven't had them. and I you know uh, is it just be, it did get me the one thing that that took that helped them is if I was occupied doing something and so I think a good deal of my uh, um, you know I you know my my habits I habituated myself into writing into doing certain, you know, into doing certain kinds of tasks that were more creative than not. Uh, writing was the easiest in many ways because it involved, a, you know, at least a notebook, which I started carrying around when I was about uh, 14 years old. Uh, and then eventually when I, when I would, I didn't learn to type, for instance, until I was about 15. Uh, 15, and, and I taught myself very provisionally. I type Hutton Pet with one hand, and right, I type, you know, with all four fingers of one hand and, and one finger of the other. And I'm still a very poor typist. And uh, so that's how that worked. And I'm a constant reviser. In fact, I don't write, I rewrite. That's all I do is rewrite things. I don't write a sentence. Uh, I used to joke saying that, you know, to sign a check, I have to rewrite, write my signature four times, you know, otherwise it's not going to be legible, <laughs> which is like state overstating the case, um, which is to say, as you may, many people do know, I'm dyslexic, but I have a particular kind of dyslexia, which doesn't affect the reading so much as the writing. In fact, it's today it's known not as dyslexia, but as dysgraphia. Hmm. So you mentioned yourself as a teenager learning to type, and you mentioned uh, in Absolas and Surds uh, being, no, sorry, that's wrong. It's not in Absolas and Surds, it's in one of the occasional views. Um, you mentioned 
being a voracious reader of book reviews uh, as a teenager. And so I'm wondering, how did you start that practice? Uh, what, what effect did it sort of have on Sunday you? Sunday Times book review. Writing? Sunday Times book review, plus the fact that in the sixth or seventh grade, Mrs. Tyroller uh, told us how to write a book review and what to do and what not to do. Uh, one of the things she said very clearly is don't tell the plot. <laughs> you know, don't spend your time just recounting the plot. Only mention the elements of the plot that were relevant to the point you're making. Have a point. Yeah, this was very clear. Save me, you know, years of time and bad book reviews. That you know, at the beginning of this story, George comes in and sees you know, <laughs> and sees Mary, and they uh, kind of thing. Uh, no, so you, um, you know, if when George sees Mary, um, he has a certain feeling that relates to something else at the very end. And if it, there's nothing else you want to talk about, that's your whole book review. And this was a very, very useful thing to learn in the seventh grade. Yeah. Yeah. And I and too many people, I think, don't learn it. Uh, some of them don't learn it at all. Uh, and some people don't learn it until they get to graduate school. <laughs> and that, that can waste a lot of time, too. So, yeah, so that, I mean, that importance of teachers and never knowing sort of what will stick with someone. Right. Uh, yeah, there is fascinating. Yeah. Well, usually the things that you can use, the, the things you use are the things that, that, that stick with me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, you are someone uh, who has a, a steady presence on social media. Um, some mm. people like social media and some people don't. Uh, what draws you to it? How has your relationship changed with it? Uh, habit, I guess. Okay. Again, just habit. It's now uh, I am, I do a lot of, I do Facebook posts. That's what I, I mean, that I get up in the morning. The first thing I do is I do a Facebook post about a book. <laughs> Something about a book, often about two books. And I like books with colorful, interesting covers, mm. which is, you know, because, because it makes an interesting post. If they look, you know, if I have two editions and one of them has an interesting cover, I'll use the, the that, I'll use that. Uh, and unless there's something histor of a star historical interest about the uh, uh, thing. Uh, you showed a hardcover edition of letters from Amherst. Yeah. You know, the paperback is very pretty. You know, the paper is much prettier than that book. I would never, I would never remember that book. In fact, since you already showed it, I'm yeah. going to reach over and get the paperback yeah. and show it to just to show the difference. Now, wouldn't you be, be a lot likely, more likely to remember this, this image? Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. yeah. I mean, which is to say it's autumn leaves and black and autumn colors and things like that. And I think that's a very pretty thing. There is one flagrant line of, of what I would call, um, what would you know? In fact, I can't remember the term for it. Um, bonus advertising. What do you call that? False advertising on sure. the back, uh, which it mentions, it mentions um, a student of mine there is one mention of her in a, uh, and and because she is possibly probably more far more famous than I am at this particular point, uh, they put that in there. But if they but if somebody goes looking through this book for anything about her, they're not going to find it. 
uh, they would be hard pressed to find the mention of her. She appears in one sentence. So whenever I get a chance, I cross out, you can see, I cross out the last sentence on the, yeah. on the cover because it's, I think it's, I think it's false advertising. But I think, but other than that, I think it's a great cover, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, uh, and this is the kind of thing that, that, that I do. Uh, and I do the books, not, I do, I use books about my own books. Um, you, you showed the two new essay collections. Yeah. I, what, you know, what's really ex the most exciting thing in the second volume for me? It's the first nonfiction book I've ever had with color illustrations. Yes. That yeah, is something it's, it's got color, real color illustrations. And it's, an, uh, I've written about images before. I've written about, yeah, uh, this is one of, yeah, and it's got four pages of color illustrations. That's just, that's just all three of the paintings I discussed together. And it's got individual uh, pictures of each of the three paintings. It's a triptych of paintings by Mia Wolf called The City of Green Fire. And there's a little, there's an essay made up of notes, very similar to solids and thirds, about the, uh, and of course I was holding the thing upside down. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased that they uh, deigned to put in, uh, you know, to give me four pages of color. That's never happened to me. And I'm, here I am, 80, I'm, you know, weeks away from being 80 years old. Uh, and suddenly, and I, I finally graduated to color illustrations. <laughs> Certainly you deserve it. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. So another question about social media. Um, yes. Recently on Twitter, you're on Twitter now, sometimes. And uh, we'll, you we'll finish your question and then we'll talk about that because yeah. that's Sorry. interesting. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned thinking about uh, lost desire and also specifically aphanesis, which is the, the loss of sense. I think it's aphanesis. Oh, okay, aphanesis. All right. Uh -huh. um, do you care to say more about how you've experienced those things uh, as you've gotten older? <laughs> well, you never lose the desire, um, apparently, apparently. I mean, 80, I, you know, I... I, 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 I still have it. <laughs> Good. Good. Okay. Uh, 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 it go, it, it does go down. It, it goes way, way down. I mean, it doesn't, it's, you know, it used to be, I used to be a four or five time a day guy. And now I'm more like once every three or four weeks. <laughs> so, and, you know, and it's easier to negotiate. I think that's the poet, was it the poet Simonides uh, who said, um, when the desire for sex goes away, it's like a slave being released by an insane master. Oh. <laughs> uh, that was his comment back in the, whatever the fifth, sixth century BC. And I, one has one can see something like that. And when you think about, um, you know, people like Diogenes and what have you, who was famous. One one of the things we still remember him for, uh, if you were, if you get the work in Greek, uh, uh, you know, if you get the work in Greek, uh, is he had a, he, he was famous for masturbating in public in the mm -hmm. slave market. 
and he and someone said, "Why do you do that?" And he, his comment, his great comment was, "If I could appease the hunger in my belly the way I can by rubbing my penis, life would be so much easier." <laughs> uh, so. Which I think is interesting. When I think of that, I think it's interesting because when you go to Greece, what is the, does it, any, if anybody who's been there, the curse word, the impolite word that is used so frequently that it becomes, it, it becomes, it becomes, it itself becomes meaningless. Uh, and it's like, it, it's very, very similar to the way fuck works in English. And that's the word malakas. Mm -hmm. uh, which you hear all over the street, everybody. And basically it is the Greek for jerk off. Huh. You know, so, so Europe, Europe, you know, Malakasas, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 you hear it all, you, you hear it all the time. And, and, it, and, and the, the term for the term for, inter, and there's no slang term that I, for intercourse I can think of other than putsi, pussy. That, uh, and even that's not quite the same thing. That's even much more, that's much rarer than Malacca's. You, it makes you wonder about the culture, which you, that yeah, becomes yeah. a uh, wanker in the UK. Somebody is, uh, yeah, it's simpler that. Uh, yeah, it's somebody, somebody simpler like that. Uh, you know, somebody just put that note up for our benefit. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I think you were about to correct me, but when I said you used Twitter, I don't know. If you oh, know yeah. That. Well, it's not that it's not. I I don't use Twitter, okay. uh, but my I have an assistant whom I work with, who is a very very necessary kind of because of my own age, um, and um, because also I'm doing self publishing, so uh, advertising is becomes important. And one of the things we discovered is nobody can sell anything on on Facebook. Um, Facebook sells things, but. You know, and you, sure. uh, but uh, when you when you do put things on, you, it's much easier to sell things on Twitter than it is on Facebook, uh, and 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 things spread on Twitter much faster than they yeah. between yeah. people. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, Facebook becomes much much easier to actually make things. You know. So, you know, people pass them on in a way that they don't, that they don't share things on Facebook. In fact, no, well, people almost never share anything interesting on Facebook, nor do they join long discussions of anything except a movie review, which is also, uh, I think, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point that, um, uh, and and the sort of the publicity for this symposium itself, I think, is a great uh, a great example of that. How it uh, so you you, would, you I think you were saying about Twitter that you, you yeah. use use Twitter. Yeah, I don't. Um, I have the Twitter account because of my assistant. Okay. My assistant said, "Okay, I'm getting you a Twitter account." I never look at it, and once every you know once a week he goes through and puts one or three, one to three of my. Uh, um, Facebook posts cuts them down <laughs> to a Twitter and puts them on <laughs> and puts them on Twitter <laughs> where they do much better than they ever right. do. <laughs> right, sort of a Facebook digest on Twitter in a sense. Yeah, yeah, interesting, cool. So um, to return to uh, to of solids and surds, uh, which I can't emphasize what a fascinating book it is for those who haven't read it yet. 
Um, but on page 54, you write that, quote, the appetites have always been focuses for fiction, unquote. Mm -hmm. uh, so appetites as in sexual or uh, physical like hunger, uh, yeah. the appetite for money, that sort of thing. Yeah, Would you say that the appetites were also sometimes catalysts for your nonfiction? Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm an old Freudian, you know, uh, which mm. is to say, and I think sex is the basis of everything. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and have, you know, um, but one of the ways sex works is when you repress it, mm. you know, when you decide, okay, I'm not going to follow my sexual urges, I'm going to do something else. There have been, I don't know who the critic who first said that Freud's theory of civilization is that the fuel for civilization is repressed homosexuality. Hmm. That's what how the word, you know, um, yeah. he posits, he posits human beings coming into the world as polymorphous perverse. There's nothing we have an open sexuality, we, we respond to anything that touches touches us in that area. And then and we also there's a genital interest and then there's an oral interest. And um and so I was wondering, you know, so, uh, uh, and then now I've lost my train of thought here, which happens to me all too frequently. No, but anyway, that, that um, you, you're poly, you start off polymorphous perverse, and then through a series of accidents and just the way the world works, you are kind of frightened out of one. One is made much more, you learn that one is the most important one, and you people tend to learn it differently for the different genders. And we tend to treat the diff genders differently from the moment they're, they're born, whether it's, you know, whether it's putting boys in blue and girls in pink, you know, <laughs> uh, and what have you. So there you go. And so, and, but anyway, the, 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 the same sex desires beyond a certain point are just, are not encouraged. And you know, and they encourage the ones towards the other ones, and it works differently for men and for women, uh, and uh, um, and so finally, but but the but the repression of the same sex desires is what finally is how you get people to work, yeah. especially in capitalism. So relating that to your writing, and I know you said at one point that. Um, in writing Equinox, for instance, you would try only to write when you were aroused. That was, now Equinox was written a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, I only did that once, it was just an experiment and I, you know, and I don't know, you know, basically, you know, I'm telling a Faust story. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're gonna tell the story, you know, you're gonna tell a modernized version of Faust you know, only with an erection, you know, <laughs> and I'm not talking about the characters, <laughs> right. Yeah. right? And, you know, which was an experiment, and, you know, I, I'm, I, I succeeded in that part of this experience. Now, did I write a book worth reading, you know, about the, to, to which I am, I, my, the, the, the fundamental quote is a, from one from Thomas Mann about the worth of my own work, I cannot know. And you cannot tell me. <laughs> Very good. It's always made me sad that that book has had such publication difficulties staying in print. It because uh, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. Um, well, thank you. Very, very influential in my own life, actually.
actually. Um, that was the, my the first book of yours that I ever read, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's surprising. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sort it's about of about the tenth published. <laughs> right. Maybe may a weird one to start on, um, but. Uh, the biographical note in the Norton Anthology of African American Literature uh, for your short story there mentions it. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. They call it your pornographic novel. It's like, oh, this guy writes pornography. Let me check that out. So it was, it was totally purian interest. Um, but I'm so glad it was because it sort of got me reading your work, uh, which has been very influential. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I. This, I mean, I think this is, for me, one of the most valuable things about your work is the constant openness and willingness to write about sexuality, um, which is is something that's still in our society people are are shy of. Um, yes, and so yeah. that, that's, you know, that that it's it's just been incredibly valuable for me personally. Um, so thank you for that. I'm, I'm I'm very fond of the book too, and and it's it's only been republished twice, three times, once once in England and, and two times in paperback in this country. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll say for those of you who haven't read it yet, if you're looking for it, it was originally published as The Tides of Lust. Uh, mm -hmm. And then again, with, with your original title. Equinox. Yeah, yeah, the original title, it was conceived as Equinox. Uh, and it uh, was published as Tides of Lust by Lancer Books, who went out of business two weeks after they published it and then Kasak uh, redid it, and there are a few typographical errors in it. And I'm, I hope someday somebody will put out a copy again with some of those corrected. <laughs> Absolutely, publishers, if you're listening, republish it, please. <laughs> um, it would be wonderful to have back in print for, for a new generation. So something else interesting you say in Of Solids and Surds uh, is that you describe why you're an atheist, uh, but you also feel comfortable using the phrase spiritual energy to describe your belief in valuing other humans and the rest of the natural world. Um, th so this language of spiritual energy, I think many atheists might feel uncomfortable using that kind of language. Uh, so how I did you come to find feel it? feel uncomfortable with it too. Okay. Uh, to say, I think, I think it's, you know, I think it's, it, 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 it's open to misinterpretation. I don't believe in spirits. <laughs> okay. yeah. For the same reason I, you know, I don't believe in ghosts. You know, now spirit etymology, what does spirit mean etymologically? Spirit etymologically, uh, you know, spiritus, it's breath, you know. Yeah. So does, you know, um, do trees have a breath that we are, you know, is that the spirit of the tree or? Or of, of a muddy old pond, or a, or an oil slick, you know, that looks like a rainbow when you pass by it on a, you know, on a gravelly uh, road in the woods, but uh, you smell the oil, and you know, you know, um, uh, So is it is is it just another term for smell, or is it something? Um, most people by spirit they mean something supernatural. Yeah. And the, in that tense of spirit, the spirit as ghost emanation from the dead, other than effluvium, uh, you know, in the scent of the putrescence, I think, you know, I don't think that's, um, that's not a useful, that's not a useful extension of the metaphor. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, one I of the things, one of, one of my, one of the, one of my, one of, from one an essay, 
I, I do a, uh, a reading of Shakespeare's, I, which sonnet is it? Is it 116? The expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action and in action, lust is et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, the expensive spirit, you know, what does that term mean? You know, it means the pouring out of alcohol. Hmm. That's what it means, you know, to spill, yeah. to spill your wine <laughs> in a desert <laughs> of shame <laughs> is the same as expending as having an orgasm is what's underneath that metaphor in the first time, if you like. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Thank you. Somebody sorry. just quoted the info. I think that was from John Plotz. Uh, 129 says John Plotz. It's, it's, it's Sonnet 129. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the quotation, oh, yeah. So we have the entire sonnet there. Great. So and else is so, put in the side, which I cannot see, and I'm not going to run up and get my uh, yeah, get my uh, I'll just read the first few lines that you were mentioning. The expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action until action lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame. Okay, so Shakespeare and his. In other words, images. people have people people have bad people. Sex gets a bad rap. Yeah, until you do something about it, until you do something about it, or as Beyonce would say, probably put a ring on it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, I want to I want to switch books here now, in, in the ten minutes we have left, to turn a little bit more towards occasional views. Um, in volume one, you mentioned that more than radical writers, society needs radical readers. Yes. Uh, so what advice do you have for us for how do we become such readers? How do we fulfill that? Become? I probably got it through reading criticism. Hmm. That's probably how I, you know, got it. Reading particularly, I, I, I read a lot of criticism, I read it early. It did me a lot of good, which is to say the only reason I got a, I don't have, I haven't, I have a high school degree. Right. I have no college degree at all. The only reason I have a, got a professorship is because I read people like Foucault, Derrida, you know, um, uh, de, de, de Levi Strauss, etc. And I read them mainly because of the style. I thought this is a very interesting way of writing in the, in the you know, and then went back and, you know, and read Peter Carlyle and Ruskin, you know, and who, who are the, I think of as the, you know, and you, but you have to, you know, you have to learn how to read clo close reading, you know, it's very helpful. You, you know, another way is reading close reading and rereading. You can't close read unless you're willing to read something more than once. You know, and, and again, I, 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 although Barth is probably not the greatest of all those critics, he is the one who said, those who fail to reread are doomed to read the same story every, everywhere, you know, because what you tend to read into something the first time you read it is not what it's talking about, but you read into it, the, you look for the story you are familiar with, you know. Uh, and I used to do a couple. I used to do a couple of tests um, when I was teaching. I would do tests 
and 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 see how people when when in the little pop quizzes to see if they'd actually done the reading. Uh, often I would ask questions uh, about a story that if this story were a less radical story than it was, what would happen in the story? And I ask and I say, um, well, did that happen or did something else happen? And often people who obviously had read the story would say, no, the, 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 the expected thing must have happened because oh, they'd only read it once, you know, yeah. and they would, and, and it's the kind of thing you only notice on the second read, reading, uh, because if, if it's a case of there being a he or a she in the wrong place or something like that, um, you, uh, you, you read the one you're expecting. So being really willing to read closely and to have, and again, and again to have, have the text, be, mm -hmm. being willing if the text uh, sort of surprises our expectations, being open to yeah. that. And to be surprised by the expectation, to recognize that, it's being, that you're being surprised. Yeah. So yeah, being open to that sense of wonder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. So I, prefer, I prefer the simpler word. <laughs> Sorry, you prefer the simpler. I prefer the simpler word, surprise. Surprise, yeah. Which is kind of a cliche. Interesting. So, um, in Occasional Views, Volume Two, on you quote Flaubert uh, as saying that one of the elements of successful writing is being able to choose what is important to write about at a given moment. Yes. How yeah. did you develop that skill in your own work? Um, According, Flaubert doesn't say anything more than that, but he had a sense, you know, he, there were things, the books that we read, you know, the, the books we read by Flaubert, you know, are his bourgeois novels. And then there are these involved, you know, uh, interesting and verbally interesting, but almost unreadable. I mean, even in French, you know, they're hard to read, they're hard to read. Um, the, the, the temptation of Saint Anthony, and even even Salam, Salambo, and they, you know, and he worked just as hard on those, you know, but uh, they didn't, uh, you know, they they, you know, um, it's much easier to read my, a Madame Bovary or um, Sentimental Education, and I'm a, I, I much I do prefer Sentimental Education to Madame Bovary, uh, but that's just me. Um, I've read them. I've read them both. I've read them all, <laughs> actually. <Yeah. laughs> but I, you know, but the ones that I've read, and Bouvard and Pécuchet, you know, although that's twisting around, we can Flaubert is an endless. So Flaubert is a is a is a term, is a term seminar, <laughs> not something to. Yeah. Uh, someone says, "Have I reread Sentimental Education more than six times?" Is the answer quickly? Yeah, because yeah, I used to teach it. Oh, okay. So you found it, yeah, valuable for for sharing with others. Okay. Um, do you do you mind saying how would you choose the text that you taught? It was a combination between things that I thought everyone should read and what things that I liked. Um, I know. I remember somebody once told said, "Don't ever." teach anything you love mm. because you'll just be you'll just find it you know heartbreaking yeah. you know um i 
met, I, I have on several occasions taught things that I loved, uh, and I found it, it went over okay. And some, and, and yet again, I found extremely smart readers not get it. Again, you know, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, the first time I read um, a simple heart, well, I was weeping like a baby at the end, and I. Uh, Gave it to a, I gave it to a, um, that's the part of this collection, Three Tales, that Flaubert wrote when he was about 50. Uh, and I gave it to a student, uh, and I said, well, read it. And I said, well, what did you think of it? He said, it was an okay story. But there was all this description in it. <laughs> <laughs> I raised my eyes to heaven. He said, well, other than that, it was an okay story. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but it was the description that made me cry. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I've experienced the same thing as a teacher, too. It, it's it's a dangerous thing. Um, so one so of my favorites. Dare, 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 dare to teach what you love, but don't, don't over. And the other things right. are things that yeah. I thought, things, I think that we've been, things that you need to need to have read, you know. I mean, I used to teach D.H. Lawrence, you know, the, the, the Rainbow and Women in Love. You know, because I think that they, you know, I never taught Sons and Lovers, although I read it, so, you know, and, and those who people who argue that it's the best, now I can see the point, you know, but nevertheless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's always an interesting thing, teaching a canonical writer, but one of their less canonical. And I don't, and I think of Lawrence, and I think of Lawrence as a writer I don't like. Okay. No, I mean, Don yeah. Ron, Lord Lawrence is not a writer I like. I mean, I think the man was wacko <laughs> they also wrote some wonderful criticism you know uh, d.h lawrence's little book on american literature is, is spectacular yeah. you know yeah well we are getting close to time so maybe if we if we end with one more question um, sure, sure. You say in Occasional Views, Volume 2, uh, this is at the end of your essay, Ash Wednesday, you say that as someone interested in differences such as those between gay, straight, or women and men, uh, quote, beginnings and endings are the hardest part, unquote. Yes. And so you end the essay by saying it's not finished. You know, it ends on the page, but it's not finished. Right. So what strategies would you use to end your books? How would you know when you were done? Um, well, I, years and years ago, I think it's in Scientide Intersection, I say endings to be useful must be inconclusive, uh, which gets quoted a fair amount of time. So, you know, uh, which is to say you don't want to wrap everything up, although that's another way of writing a story, if a very satisfactory ending is very, also very, very hard to write. Um, the this notion that beginnings and endings are the hard parts of stories is something that I think came to the fore during the period when people were switching from what they called a thematics to what they called post-structuralism. And why that was, we could go on for, you know, forever about. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, that's okay, you know, I mean, maybe we have room for one more question, because that's really the end of the, sure. I have to say. Yeah, we have room. Please go right ahead. Okay, so, well, so I want to go back to these, um, these last couple of books that you've published. Um, the Occasional Views, um, sort of an, a really nice 
uh, overview of your work, things you've been thinking about uh, over the past couple of decades. And Occasional Views 1 even has an interview from uh, the 1970s, I think, that originally appeared in Algol. Um, so, yeah, yeah what, what, I should just say that the two volumes of Occasional Views are kind of a, um, a sweep up volume. Mm. They go, they are two, they are, they are a lot of essays, um, about 50 essays between the two of them that haven't been published. That's basically what they were. Are they all that haven't been published? No, there are still every once in a while. I, but at the time, they were all I could find <laughs> that haven't been published. And every once in a while, I run into one or, or I'm reminded of yet another one that, uh, you know that could 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 stand to be uh, uh, to appear. Uh, one of the ones, by the way, you haven't uh, that I, I I'm going to show you again since yeah. you not one of the ones you showed. Uh, he's knocking books all over the floor. Uh, you can hear them fall, but this is a little book of mine uh, that is now out in a corrected edition from the Big A, uh, okay. the tragedy of Ophelia. Uh, and the subtitle is Two Essays, The Tragedy of Ophelia. Uh, the Tragedy of Ophelia is the title, uh, but it's uh, so the two essays is really the subtitle, but it, you might find two essays first. Uh, and the one, it, the two essays, it's, it's everything I've written on Shakespeare, when, and which is to say two times, once I was a, uh, uh, the older essay, which is on Oth Othello, uh, was when I was asked, it was an essay I wrote when I was asked to be uh, um, a consultant on a production of Othello uh, for mm -hmm. a very small theater, the CBA Theater, and that was back in about 1995, and I wrote that. And then this, uh, this new essay, that goes all the way back to uh, the one of the books that you showed. Um, um, where is it? Yeah, this the, the the book, this book, the book, the, the frag, the voyage arrest. Oh, yeah, voyage Orestes. Yes, yeah. which you read before. Yeah, yeah. This the yeah okay voyage Orestes. That is the um, uh, this is was originally a um, a small part of one of the chapters in the middle of the book, hmm. and it was a talk that one of the the, the characters, the main character of the book, um, is supposed to be giving a lecture at Harvard. Uh, a reading. He's a poet and has been invited to a reading, and he gets to the. Um, none of this is in the book, but you would. But I could just for those of you who are interested, uh, and he gets to Harvard, and the room has not. Nobody has opened up the room, and so there are a whole bunch of students who've come to hear him give his reading, and so they all sit down on the floor in the hall, and he sort of improvises this talk on ha on on Ophelia in Hamlet, uh, in the. Uh, and this was a nice little section of the, of the of the novel. I thought it was a nice little section, uh, and I decided. But I always thought the ideas around the ideas behind it were pretty good. So I decided to write the ideas out in a kind of full-length essay, using a little bit more, a few more footnotes, and actually mm -hmm. going to the quartos and the folios and what have you. And so that's what you have. Um, so this represents a reconstruction of some ideas. Uh, this is a reconstruction, the main essay here is a reconstruction mm -hmm. of some ideas that was, were in 
uh, voyage Orestes in, in one part. I wish I had a, I wish I could reconstruct a table of contents for Voyage Orestes, mm. but, but apparently, um, I think there's some somewhere in my journals, but they're not, but apparently they haven't, uh, they haven't been published in the, in the one volume of journals uh, that uh, has actually uh, hit hardcover at this point, right. but is not in paperback. Okay, and that, that came out in 2016, if I recall correctly. Uh, and is and is very a very fascinating volume. Hmm. Uh, again, for those of you in the audience who haven't read it yet. Um, well, this has been wonderful. Uh, okay. Thank you so well, thank much. You very, <laughs> thank you very, thank you very, very much. <laughs> well, Daniel, thank you for doing the honors, and and Mr. Delaney. I mean, such a pleasure and and really an honor. Have, thank you for gracing our virtual halls and also being so very very generous. Um, you know, Andrew, the editor of uh, Dangerous Visions, said, what a wonderful session. Two thoughtful people talking about writing, memory, and sex. I, I, I feel like I could have watched this for another hour. So very, very grateful to you. And this has been such a pleasure. So be safe. Be well, everyone. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.